0: This episode is brought to you by the Metasearch Institute. What happens when patients cases become too complex to solve in a typical 30 minute visit? Well, you've all had those super thick, super deep patient histories. Nobody's looked at in a long time and gone back through. Well, I'll tell you what happens is those patients bounce around from doc to doc without getting any answers or making any progress. These patients are trapped and lost in a maze. Well, Metasearch is here for those doctors and for those patients. Their motto is, we solve the unsolvable. Their process is rather simple. Dr. Trent Talbot, the founder, assigns a team of medical detectives, typically three MDs and one PhD, to each case. They research the latest breakthroughs and clinical trials, and they elicit the opinions of 10 to 15 world-leading experts per case. They purposefully seek out experts who will come at each case from a different perspective. The Bayesian Method. Altogether, they will put in over 250 MD hours for every case. That means 500 times the amount of brain power that a typical doctor can afford to offer. Nobody can do what Metasearch does. Call 832-968-6667. That's 832-968-6667 to be in touch. You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with us, Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. recent days, the nation's four largest for-profit hospital chains all wrapped up reporting their second quarter results. Well, who really cares? Well, there are for-profit gigantic Pythagoras like HCA, followed by Ascension and Tenet, and then there's gigantic Enormicus nonprofit models like Common Spirit, which is the merger of Dignity and CHI, and all the rest of the system nonprofits that are characterized often with the name Baptist or Methodist or Saint something in their name. Well, like I said, public for-profits have announced Q2 results after. So here's what we know, is that nonprofits all did even better if they're just any indication of how the for-profits did. Because they pay no tax, no federal, no state, no local tax. They do pay FICA and FUTA, but that's about it. The rest is a free ride. So their margins are naturally better by enormous margins. So here's the big question did hospitals need the CARES Act, which is also known as the Marshall Plan for hospitals to save their bacon from a pandemic? No, they did not need $175 billion because the actual Marshall Plan, just as a side note, this just between us, was less in real dollars than this hospital Marshall Plan. So if you look at inflation, the real Marshall Plan that got us world peace and trading partners and capitalism with Japan and Germany and Italy are once enemies was less money than this bailout was for hospitals. So the modern Marshall has no strings attached. We didn't get transparency. We didn't get to end price gouging. We didn't get to give up monopolistic pricing in local economies. We didn't get any of that stuff. So let's go back to the for-profit earnings reports. Tenant Healthcare did 88 million in net income, which is more than tripling the year before. They did fine in this pandemic. Dallas-based chain said its bottom line benefited from the $523 million they got from the government, but they did fine without it, HCA Healthcare. Again, numbers are tricky on radio, but the net income surged 40% to over a billion dollars during the second quarter, buoyed by under $600 billion in federal relief funds. So $600 minus $1 billion, they didn't need the bailout either. Let's talk about community health systems. Their net income of $70 million was up from a net loss last year and they got over a half a billion dollars in relief money. Let's talk about universal health share, and then I promise I'll shut up with these numbers because again, they're hard to listen to, but they were aided by 162 million in rescue funds, but they reported a net income of 252 million more than the rescue funds, meaning they were gonna do fine up slightly, in other words, for the quarter from the year before without the rescue funds. These big four needed no bailout, clearly, in fact, no reporter in dozens of puff piece articles in local newspapers that were bemoaning the hospital financial pain and all the layoffs and furloughs, and they ever look at the balance sheet. If they would have, the reporters would have found this: that the 20 largest systems had 105 billion in strategic reserves. They got more than that, about 125 billion. So look, no strings attached, bailout, only bailed out strategic reserves at best. So Washington essentially funded these reserves and now every independent physician has a buyout offer on their desk because the billboards are not going to put heads in hospital beds, but doctor referrals do. 70% of all physicians in primary care are owned by large systems. So if the doctor is working in the system and they're referring into the system, happy system. That's what's going on really with this bailout. I'm so excited today. I can't, think of too many other times I've been as excited for you to meet a guest that you should have met a long time ago, but his name is Marshall Allen and Marshall investigates for ProPublica, which is just this great journal, why we pay so much for healthcare in the United States and we're getting third world outcomes. So the United States is number one in spend. We spend 11,000 plus dollars per capita and we're competing right in between and with our outcomes for Croatia, which is number 55, and Cuba, which is number 57. We are number 56. And to put Cuba into context, they have the same GDP as San Antonio, Texas, my hometown, which is the poorest of the 20 biggest metros in America. Pretty sad that we have first world expense and third world outcomes. Marshall also got the Harvard Kennedy School's Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting and was also shortlisted as a finalist for the Pulitzer that same year. And in about six or nine months, we're going to be able to see his first book come out, which is called Never Pay the First Bill and Other Ways to Fight the Healthcare System and Win. So it'll be published spring of next year. Marshall spent five years in the ministry and three in Nairobi. And we're going to talk about that and how that informed his sense of outrage. And he has a master's degree in theology. So um, Marshall, tell us, was your theology degree the beginning of your outrage that led to journalism?
1: Ron, I think I was born with a sense of outrage. Um, (laughs) Thank you, thank you for having me um, on your podcast. It really is an honor to um, to be here and to talk to you about these things. Um, I think you know the connection. Sometimes people ask me about my ministry background, and I've I've had journalists say, "Did you have a crisis of faith that led you into journalism?" And I'm like, "No, I actually, I still am a believer. I'm a Christian," um, and. Um, my time in ministry, I did youth ministry for five years. Um, And the connection between uh, the two is that I I really do have a belief that, um, you know, if you want to get theological about it, the people are made in God's image. And so we have value um, as, uh, you know, image bearers of God. I know that sounds kind of crazy to someone who's not from my background, but um, and that gives us value. And so when I see people getting ripped off the way our healthcare system um, really oftentimes cheats people, especially working Americans um, who are paying the highest premiums and the employers who are paying the highest uh, premiums and healthcare costs, when I see the, that kind of, these kind of tactics and schemes that are really, um, really immoral, taking advantage of people's uh, ignorance and their sickness, and using deception often to do that, um, it makes me fired up. You know, it does make me fired up. And also, I do a lot of stories about patient safety issues and the quality of healthcare. And when I see patients who get harmed while undergoing medical care, and then they can't even get a straight answer about what happened to them, and even even more so, they often get billed um, after they've suffered harm um, due to a medical error. The, the hospital system will have the audacity to send them a bill for it, that, that also gets me fired up. So yeah, I, I kind of have the, um, a bit of outrage in me and I, I think it does probably come through a bit in my stories. I mean, I, I write very objectively, I'm very fair. I go to all the people I write about and I get make sure to get their side of the story. But there, there is probably a sense of um, some moral outrage um, in the stories that I write, no doubt.
0: It it definitely drives me, Marshall. I've been studying the Torah now for most of my adult life. Every Saturday on my Sabbath, I go and I spend a couple of hours with a lot of smart people and a rabbi, and we get into it. You know, and it's not ancient words; it's ancient words that affect us today and what our lives are informed by those ancient words. And so, it's the wisdom that you got from your ministry work and your theology study. I think gives you a moral compass, perhaps that maybe a lot of folks just simply don't have.
1: Well, and I think I think. Um... You are hitting on something, and I think that people know that the stuff that they're seeing in our healthcare system right now is wrong, and it is a moral issue and no matter what someone's you know maybe uh, faith background is or worldview background is, people can agree as as Americans that it's really not right to take advantage of someone's sickness to make a buck and unfortunately, a lot of what our healthcare system is doing right now, is doing just that, it's exploiting sickness for profit. And it has resulted in us not having um, the best healthcare system in the world, unless you wanna, if you're wealthy, I would say definitely if you're wealthy, you can get the best healthcare in the world in the United States, no question. But, but the really, um, the shame of our healthcare system is that we have tens of millions of people who are still uninsured or underinsured and those numbers are even going up now with the pandemic. Um, and we're spending way more per person than any other healthcare system in the world. And that right there, you know, we have people being bankrupted. About one in six people have medical debt that's in collections. And so we're spending way more. And yet we're not covering our citizens. And there's really something wrong with that.
0: You know, there. you talk about the uninsured, and that is a political hot potato that everybody agrees needs to be fixed, but there's a different solution. But the, the untalked about issue are the functionally uninsured. And right now our economy is primarily driven 56% by under $20 an hour wage earners. And that means, and we have 150 million people that are with employers getting insured. So that's, that's the bulk of how we're getting insured in America. That's not federal, not Medicare, Medicaid, or veterans. And out of that 150 million, roughly half of them don't have money in the bank to pay for their deductibles. So that's what I call functional insurance. If you have a plan with your employer and you can't afford the, maybe you can afford the $400 a month premium, but you can't afford the deductibles, you really are not in the treehouse of care.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think that's also what I've been focused on. That population of working Americans um, has been the focus of my work the last few years at ProPublica I've been doing a series of stories. Um, uh, one of them uh, in 2017, I did a series of stories I just called Wasted Medicine. That was about all of the various ways um, our healthcare system takes our money and wastes it. I mean, it's profit for the system, but it's wasted spending because they estimate that as much as a third of all of our healthcare spending is wasted, on spent on unnecessary care. Or um, over treatment, or upcoding, or fraud—we're um, talking um, hundreds of billions of dollars a year being um, spent in ways that um, don't, it doesn't need to be spent that way. Um, administrative costs are, are out of control. Um, in 2018 and 19, I did a series of stories called the, that I called the health insurance hustle, and that was really looking at how working Americans, especially, and employers are paying costs that are exponentially higher than um, Medicaid or Medicare pays for different services and really kind of highlighting the absurdities. You know, if you're um, a working American and you go um, to get a knee replacement, you might uh, have your plan uh, pay $70,000, whereas a Medicare patient's uh, Medicare would pay $25,000. Working Americans are paying by far the most. And I I think we need to kind of reframe the way we look at this and ask, why is it our healthcare system discriminates against working Americans by making them pay more for the same thing? You know, it's like if you went to um, McDonald's, if I went to McDonald's, I'm 48 years old and got my Big Mac meal. um, And they said, well, you're going to pay $50 for it. And then my parents, who are Medicare eligible, they're older, um, went and they got it for five bucks. You know, it's like, well, why? Why is it that an older person pays less than a younger person? And that's just the way our healthcare system has worked. You know, they're they're trying to re- wring as much money as they can out of the commercial payers, and that has a direct effect on uh, working Americans.
0: Before we get into why local reporters are afraid to tackle some of these issues, I want to I want to compliment you on trumping your last article with your last article before that. You were very proud to announce a $2,500 COVID test that the hospital paid for. I'm sure the insurance company paid for. And then you came out the very next article with a doctor who worked at a hospital who's ostensibly paying that doctor's hospital bill, a $10,000 plus COVID test. So the hospital paid it, the insurance company billed it and agreed to pay it. So basically, if a hospital is self-insured, this may be complicated to hear this, but they pay for their own overcharge.
1: That that story got even crazier. But yeah, it's funny that you noticed that um, because these numbers keep getting more and more absurd, right? So I, I did that first story about the, I think it was like a $2,700 COVID test. And that one hadn't been processed yet by the health plan. So I don't know how much was paid on that one. But the charges alone for just a drive-through COVID test were $2,700 or something, something absurd like that. Well, then I get an email from this doctor, and he's like, have I got a story for you? And this guy, um, he was actually covered by a short-term plan, which are usually you know, considered cut-rate health insurance plans. He was covered by a short-term plan. He was a pathologist who was a medical director for a chain of these freestanding emergency rooms. You're a Texas guy, so you know they're big in Texas. And these freestanding emergency rooms are sort of like a glorified urgent care center, but where they charge really big ticket prices. He, his his um, short-term insurance plan was charged almost $11,000 for the test and they also um, really added a a bill for what they called a moderately complex emergency room visit which it really wasn't and lo and behold his um, health plan paid it at 100% no discount and so he was happy that he didn't have to pay but he was really alarmed in fact he resigned his position right on the spot because he was so concerned about potential fraud with this billing and with this payment
0: A few honorable uh, situations like that out there you hear about, but that's wonderful. Marshall, you're considered the, uh, for those, this will date me, but the Mike Wallace of journalism that you go and interview and ask the hard questions and present the facts in a very plain manner, very hard-nosed manner, but you also make change. ProPublica is sort of famous for outing hospitals that sue the poor, and then uh, they stopped suing them uh, overnight. So it's, it's interesting. You have the power of the pen but you also have the power of the flashlight. You can shine light on these immoral egregious acts and a lot of it stops. That's gotta be rewarding for you when you see that stop.
1: It it is rewarding and it's satisfying, but it's also alarming because I know that these um, hospitals or or, um, sometimes it's doctors or insurance companies, they seem to be satisfied with doing these things in private But then when the reporter gets involved, they change their tune right away. Like I'm thinking about, you mentioned um, Dignity Health um, in your intro. I did a story last year about a nurse who worked for Dignity Health at one of the Dignity Health hospitals. And this is a Christian, again, it's a um, Christian-owned company that says they want to, I think they even say in their tagline, they want to... um, bring the healing ministry of jesus christ to their patients well their own employee a nurse was one of their patients she had a baby that was premature and they ended up this she was on a self-funded plan they ended up um what happened is the baby was in NICU for about 90 days and the mom called the insurance company you know which is the third party administrator to get the baby put on the plan But the mom didn't go through the employee portal on the website which apparently the hr department said you have to go through the portal well so she didn't find out she had 30 days under the plan guidelines to sign up the baby under the health plan she did it through the insurance company well excuse me the third party administrator and but she didn't know that she didn't do it right so the baby never got put on the plan and the, the plan then hit her with about a million dollars in hospital bills. Literally, they, she got a bill in the mail for $898,000. She fought her own, uh, she appealed it, again, through the, the third party administrator um, and through her employee benefits department. They said for a year, no, we can't make an exception. We can't uh, do this. IRS rules prohibit us from making any changes. Then I called, and I pointed out to them, actually, um, the IRS does allow you to make changes. You just can't be willy-nilly about how you make changes, and you have to be fair and um, apply the changes you make um, in a way that is fair for everyone. So actually, they were able to make the changes, and of course, as soon as I wrote the story, they called her and said, oh, sorry, we took care of it, and they fixed it. So it was nice. It was very satisfying to save a million dollars uh, for this young mom and her family, but it was also really alarming to think that she appealed this. She begged them for a year in her appeals to reconsider this, and they blew her off. And I know that most of the time patients are getting blown off, and that's kind of what motivated me to write this book that I'm I'm in the process of uh, uh, finishing right now. The manuscript. I'm trying to give people a guide to fight back like the insiders in the business know the tips and the truth like as soon as i heard her story i was like no no a self-funded plan can make exceptions under these types of circumstances in fact the law says um, if the mom has some extenuating circumstances they're supposed to make exceptions and in her case she was in um, the the hospital herself because she had had some complications related to the birth So they absolutely could have made these changes. I know that because I've developed a certain amount of expertise, but the patients don't know that. And so what I'm trying to do with this book is help patients um, and employees and even employers see the the tips and the tricks that the insiders know that allow you to fight back and win when you encounter these types of unfair situations.
0: Yeah, there is a uh, place of service analogy that I love that you can buy a Coke at a grocery store and pay 55 cents and that's primary care that's independently owned, which we are in pure of. You can go to the system-owned primary care across the street and pay for like a corner store price for Coke, which would be a couple of bucks. And then it's not even really Coke, it's quasi-Coke. And then you can go to a restaurant and get the same quasi-Coke for double that. And that would be like going to this drive through ER that looks like urgent care, but it's really urgent care. And then you go through the hospital for ER, and now you're buying your uh, Coke at a movie theater, paying seven, eight, ten dollars for quasi Coke. So it's not really even primary care when it starts devolving further and further away from independence into system owned. You start getting more system utilization, more unnecessary tests, more burnout of the doctors. It becomes a treadmill for them too. So the doctors aren't winning either.
1: Yeah, in fact, I have a chapter in the in the book about. Um, the price variation you know that most people just aren't aware of they don't know that if you go to say like a freestanding imaging center you might pay hundreds of dollars for a ct scan but if you do it at the hospital it might be thousands of dollars you know and um that's just something that i mean who would ever think that that's the case right but I, i like your analogy there between you know grocery store corner shop um movie theater for a coke i mean it's that kind of thing that maybe can help people understand a little bit, but it, but that's absurd, right? I mean, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that. And what what they also don't realize is that the doctor referring you, um, you know, might be within that referral network, sending you to a place that's going to be higher priced, you know, and you don't really realize how referrals work with doctors too. And that's not always in the favor of the patient.
0: There's some simple solves, but you'll never see them. The, the hospital slash medical device slash pharma lobby slash brokers, there's, I call them the bigs these guys have 565 million dollars to spend on local and state governments to get their way and make sure there's never change because who would want change when you're profiting so nicely i mean we we talked at the top of the show and the rant about hospitals had a pretty darn good quarter during the pandemic when they sh- which they shouldn't have they were screaming bloody murder but the insurance companies are sitting on massive profits they've never seen before because nobody Burn their cash while they were still sending them their cash. It was they didn't get to even close to their acceptable loss ratios of eighty-five percent. Right. So that's how they pay for a ten thousand dollar test is because they got to burn off the cash and loosen up the pre-authorizations.
1: Yep, that that's right. And um, I think in that story, the second quarter of this year, United Healthcare made six point six billion dollars in profit.
0: Well, they're, they're going to because nobody is using their services for the pandemic. They're afraid to go to the doctors and the hospitals. But right. Yet, yet they collect premium. That doesn't right, sign. Right. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about the bill collection strategies. I uh, When we sat down and talked in Dallas, I was telling you that HCA owns a company called Pellon. And that is their most profitable division, more than their outpatient, more than their other nonprofits. It's in the 28 to 30% range of contributing to margin. And Paraline is their bill collection division. And Catholic Health Initiatives uh, and Dignity, which are now Common Spirit, and Tenet own a company that's called Conifer. It's the same thing. It's the most profitable division that they own. It's their bill collections. And Cerner, which is Epic also, um, they have a gigantic uh, incentive to to bill patients and collect uh, on these giant bills too, because they're making their money on the collection side as well in a big way. So actually the three biggest collection agencies in this one out of six Americans you were talking about are working for hospitals.
1: Ron, I, I wanna do a story about that, but now you're putting it on your podcast and some other reporter's gonna beat me to it. That, that's that's a really good story. I don't know a lot about that, but it's, but it's certainly the kind of thing that I, I'm interested in looking into
0: the very company that's creating your monster, scary bills is also in your time of greatest stress of billing you, calling you at night, the games that they can play. They can now call your children that are adults and shame you. They can call your adult parents and shame you. I mean, the laws have gotten loose and not not tighter. And so and now they can text and email you too, and phone call you and mail you. So it's just overwhelming if you're one of these folks that can't afford a lawyer or can't afford a, a consultant to help you figure out your bill. Um, Like that woman you described earlier.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, see, I don't even know a lot about that side of the business, but that—that's exactly the kind of thing um, that—that I would uh, want to dig into um, because that's—that's pretty amazing.
0: Big, big employee. The first two I mentioned have fifteen thousand employees. The second one has twenty-five thousand employees. These are big companies associated with in some cases for profits in some cases non-profits and and it's like you said earlier when common spirit has the name god or jesus in their mission statement and they're treating people like this and they're they're gaming the system like this and playing three card money with bills and they're delaying the actual bill so it takes months to actually find out what the heck you've got that is um that's where you get into the evil stuff you know when you're invoking god and still playing games like this
1: Well, it is really dark. And again, that's also very, you know, duplicitous. I mean, people don't really know that. And I mean, I didn't know that. And I, I think it also shows that, you know, this stuff is around every corner. And in many cases, it really is predatory. I mean, when you get into the hospitals suing patients. Um, and turning them into bill collectors—that that's getting into predatory medicine. And I don't—you know—it's not the doctors and the nurses; it's not the clinicians on the front lines who are providing the care that are doing this. Usually, they're not even aware of it. You know, they're they're busy taking care of patients, but it's the business side that has um, found these ways to use medicine and use sickness for profit and especially i mean when you get into the stuff about suing patients who are just did nothing more than they were sick and couldn't afford to pay the bills often the bills are unfair and price gouging anyway but that that's predatory behavior
0: yeah there's um there's a question i have about local reporters i don't i, I have a theory why they're afraid like you when you were in las vegas you were not afraid to get the freedom of information act pull the data and start reporting some news that was uh, sort of not complimentary towards some doctors and also some hospitals. Uh, you didn't have fear, but for some reason, the reporters locally are not doing that kind of deep dive investigative journalism. Is that laziness or have the hospital boards got complete control of the press and they're
1: scaring them away
0: from bad stories?
1: So I would say it's a combination of things. I mean, well, first of all, there are a lot of journalists who um, have interest in doing this kind of reporting, but there are also a lot who are not interested. And, and and I don't say that to criticize them. Um, you know, like investigative reporting is really hard. It can be really tedious. It's very confrontational. And a lot of people don't have that disposition. So you might have healthcare reporters who have a preference to cover, you know, maybe they want to cover the business side of healthcare more from like an earning side, you know, maybe they want to cover fitness or nutrition or um, the latest medical studies or the more science side of the beat. You know, not every journalist um, wants to do investigative reporting. And I don't I don't blame them for that. Um, it's just for me, my disposition is when I started covering healthcare, I wanted to do it from the point of view of the patients. And the patients are the ones who are, have the most at stake and the least influence in their outcome. And they're also the ones who are ultimately paying the bills. And so, that's partly just my disposition, you know, to have that um, investigative edge. I do think in many cases, um, so you mentioned my reporting in Las Vegas. Um, I, we did a, a big project um, called, uh, we called it Do No Harm back in 2010. And that showed for the first time, just the number of um, injuries and infections that took place in the hospitals in Las Vegas. And we, we analyzed uh, my, my partner, Alex Richards, did a lot of data analysis to show and report which hospitals had which injuries and infections. And we reported that, named the hospitals. And I had a lot of people around the country say, oh, I would never be able to do that. I would never be allowed to do that. And I think that the reason for some of them is that, you know, uh, the healthcare systems in their communities might be big advertisers for their media outlet, whether it's television or website or newspaper. And a lot of times that can influence the way things are covered um, and it creates that conflict of interest um, <laughs> you know, where the reporters are not unleashed um, to, to really expose what's going on in that healthcare community. So I, I think it may be the disposition of the reporters and then also sometimes the advertising dollars do come into play. Um, and it's also hard and time consuming And, you know, nowadays a lot of local media outlets are really struggling financially and reporters don't have the luxury of spending weeks or even months on different stories. Like at ProPublica, each story I do will take at least weeks, but often months. And I kind of have a pipeline of stories, you know, but they're all in different stages. But it takes a long time to do this kind of in-depth reporting. And you have to make sure that you're right you have to be very careful. You have to be extremely fair. Um, so it's it's complicated and time-consuming and expensive to do this kind of reporting. So not, not every media outlet is really wired for it.
0: How do you feel about uh, nonprofits? There's over a dozen stadiums, whether they're soccer, baseball, football, hockey, uh, basketball, that have nonprofit health systems as the naming rights. So in Houston, we have a soccer field with the Methodist name on it. Um, and not every city, but a dozen cities have a local hospital. That's a nonprofit with naming rights. Um, they all have skyboxes. They all, and I, when I say they all have sky boxes, I challenge anybody to find an NFL team that doesn't have sky boxes for the local hospital. And these are supposed to be nonprofits that are supposed to be, you know, giving care for free and doing the right thing by the community. And they're living a pretty luxurious life, aren't
1: they? Ron, I'm loving your story ideas. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, are you are you trying to become like my assignment editor? Because I mean, that's that's not a bad idea too. I, I like that, like the uh, the stadium names. I mean, because there are all these um, you know egregious expenses, right? Uh, I, I I always go right to the salaries. Um, you know, like I did that story about Dignity Health. Again, it's a nonprofit. And I want to say that there were—I have it in my story, so I apologize if I'm not remembering this correctly—but I think that there were 20 executives at Dignity Health who were making more than a million dollars a year.
0: I don't mind. Actually, I don't mind that, and I'll tell you why. Because they, you've got to get the best talent for the competitive price. So, I'm, the 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 price per see, yeah, but there's there, Banner you, you Health. Don't, is, you don't
1: mind. You don't mind the uh, so so you're okay. With the, yes. the executives getting a million dollars a year, but not the sponsoring of uh, the the luxury boxes.
0: Well, I don't see how that benefits the um, the patient. How how, how are outcomes going to improve? They're simply attracting more heads and beds. That's all it is. I mean, it's just a it's a branding. Uh, well, yeah, but how, did, to...
1: how does the uh, million-dollar salary help the patient? Well, because you, so need, you need that kind of money to attract the talent. Yes,
0: you you to to get a good waiter, you're going to pay them extra, and it's complicated making food and delivering hot food and making that restaurant palatable. And it's the same in hospitals. There's a thousand things that can go wrong. And it takes a great organizer and a great leader to just get get it half right. I mean, there's so much. So, to think so do you
1: have that much uh, faith in the uh, leaders of these um, hospital organizations? That oh, hell, you... hell, no. Well, well, then, so what? You're you're saying they're worth the million dollars? Even? I am. I, mean...
0: I am. I think. I think ninety. Well, I'm not going to guess percentages, but I, I think it's fair to say that if somebody is is earned their position to get a million dollars, most of them deserve every penny of that. Now. When you get well, into they the 28 can, they million, can just,
1: they can, that's, a, but they justify it, Ron, by raking in money um, for the organization, right?
0: Well, they're they're doing <laughs> it. They're, there's, a, we have a new feature at the end of our show, Marshall, that's called yeah. the Hospital Minute. And we talk about some of these egregious games they play. My favorite was the very first one where if you check Marshall's mother out at 1201, she get to charge for another day to her insurance. And, you know, the checkout's 12 o'clock. So they make you sit in a wheelchair for two hours waiting for that second data bill. There's there's hundreds of little games. Right,
1: form. right. So that's how uh, that's how the executives are coming up with their justifying their million dollar salaries.
0: Sometimes, sometimes, but it's just it's a complex um, organism called a hospital that you got to run. That you really takes a lot of talent to do that, and it takes a good team.
1: So, yeah, but I'm, but I mean, lots of hospital executives are not making a million dollars a year. So are they doing a crappy job?
0: Well, so I was going to mention Banner. <laughs> Banner Health is the 53,000 employee group out of Arizona. And they sort of dominate a couple of major markets in Arizona. And the CEO makes 28 million, the nearest hospital to him in that geographical area is about a 2 million or about a million too. I'm sorry. So he is so far above, but he's also got 53,000 employees. So can you attract the best leader at a company that big. And I say, you got to pay the market. So I have no problem with them making big bonuses, big, but, but with big outcomes, not with big heads and beds and EBITDA, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be based on what you and I have seen, which is a healthcare driven by EBITDA rather than outcomes.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we may disagree on that one. I mean, when I, when I see massive salaries in healthcare, so every dollar that funds our healthcare system is coming out of the taxes or out of the pocket of the public and so i and and one reason our healthcare costs are so high um I'm, I'm i'm looking at all these things i'm going you know does a healthcare executive you know now are are they so exceptional that they should be paid that much money i mean i question that i really do um and i and and the reason i question that is because um these are some of the same facilities that are suing patients so these are, these are some of the same facilities that are uh, engaging in questionable practices. Um, you know, finding games like your two day thing to boost their income in a way that frankly is questionable, maybe even fraudulent. So they get rewarded with a massive salary. Uh, I don't think so. You know, I, I, I question, I, I, I guess I question that. I don't, I don't think, um, you know, it is, it is all about money. And so, you know, again, again, in the United States, we look at something if it makes money and we go well, how could it be wrong and i go well you know money isn't really just
0: for the theory that you want to become a ceo and become rich but uh, look if they have skyboxes that's just egregious if they have a private jet or series of private jets that's egregious if they have cayman accounts to hide their billions and strategic funds that's egregious if they're not paying taxes like a lot of the tech companies in america that's egregious they've got to pay their fair share and and when you start laying off people and you just, and the very people that are paying the taxes for the layoff, for the, for the funding of the layoff, the, the Marshall Plan, are the ones that are getting furloughed. It just is ridiculous that um, they can get away with that. But look, rather than complain, let's talk for a second and switch the gears to what is positive in healthcare that you see on the horizon that you like? Like what is some directions that you would love to write about that are happy stories? where things are getting turned around in a, in a positive manner for outcomes and for patients?
1: Well, I think some of these things are silver linings, right? So when things become to become um, so untenable that the harm is so widespread, people do start to wake up and stand up for themselves. And I think that's a positive. Um, so, you know, like we talked about, um, you and I talked at that Health Rosetta Conference, right? Um, And what's interesting there is that there are a number of employers who are kind of coming to their senses and realizing that they need to push back and demand different ways of doing things. You know, they're, they're realizing, wait a minute, why does this cost keep going up and up and up and up and I keep getting less for my money? They look at the way they've been passing on their um, higher deductibles to their employees. They're looking at their employees' paychecks and seeing them get smaller and smaller because of um, the rising healthcare costs. And so you are seeing some employers push back and um, you know, that health Rosetta program, some of these brokers that are and advisors that are working with them to help them come up with different ways of providing healthcare that's actually better for their employees and also costs less money. Um, and so that's that's one thing I think is encouraging. I also think, um, you know, COVID, um, again, these are silver linings, right? These are, because of how bad things have gotten, it has made people maybe be open to some disruption. But I think the pandemic has completely exposed our healthcare system as um, a for-profit, um, you know, non um uh, it's a system that doesn't serve the public interest when it comes to something like a pandemic and by that i just mean you know we've underfunded public health we've um we've not um saved for um an emergency and stored things like the personal protective equipment that people need Um, we haven't invested as much as we need to um in you know emergency preparedness and that's been done on paper a lot of times this pandemic wasn't something that should have been catching people off guard. I mean, people knew that this type of virus could hit. And what's happened is it's exposed that our system is penny-wise, pound-foolish. You know, we we should have and could have been saving, let's just say something like personal protective equipment. Um, that should have been in our stockpiles. Hospitals should have had that in their storerooms. But it's expensive. You have to invest in that in the short term. And when everybody's looking at um, the profits by their quarter and saying well we don't want to spend money now to prepare for the future well then when the future comes and you get hit with a pandemic you end up losing a lot of money and overspending for a lot of things um, because you weren't prepared and not only that you end up sending your doctors and nurses into harm's way because they're not properly protected so I think the pandemic kind of showed that our our healthcare system is not really a system it's certainly not a public health system. It's um, a collection of for-profit or profit-driven stakeholders who orchestrate ways to make as much money as they can for themselves while providing care for people, right? They are, doing, they are providing care um, in a lot of ways. But is it about the profit or is it about the care? And in the United States, we've shown time and time again that it's often about the profit.
0: It's it's a it's a sad reflection of our uh, outcomes versus our spend. Um, Marshall, I, you and I can talk forever. There's just 100 subjects, but the beautiful thing about your byline is you also have your phone number and your email at the bottom so that if people have something interesting they want to send you or something interesting they want to talk to you about or they work for a hospital and they can give you a direct line, you, you are wide open to taking those calls and those emails, and so how do people find you and reach you um, if they're not Looking at your byline right now
1: well linkedin is a great way to reach out to me um i connect with everyone on linkedin whether i know them or not um and i love when i get messages on linkedin i i have a lot of conversations with people that are just off the record where you know people who work for insurance companies or hospital executives or whoever will tell me what they're seeing on the front lines or you know uh, behind closed doors And I depend on those folks to tell me what I should be reporting about. And so, LinkedIn is a great place, email is a great place. Um, I also have, you know, each year when I do these projects, I'll do what I just call a call out. And that's just to say like, hey, I'm going to be, like before this pandemic hit, um, I had just put out a call out in February that said um, I'm going to investigate the markups and middlemen of medicine. And so that's just a kind of a, I, again, it's a really easy online form that people can fill out and just tell me, Hey, what, what do you think is the most um, outrageous markup or middleman that's really wasting our healthcare dollars or exploiting sickness for their own profit? I mean, for ProPublica, you know, these are investigative stories. So um, I, I look for insiders to tell me which way to go. So those are, those are the ways people can reach me.
0: Um, Marshall, you had a very interesting uh network of people that give you inside emails. Somehow you got into the CDC, was it the CDC Uh, private emails that talked about how confused and messed up they were in the beginning of this pandemic?
1: Yeah, that was through a public records request that we did. Uh, We did that with all the state health departments where we did a records request for their correspondence with the CDC during the pandemic.
0: It's a little like, you know, comedy capers. I mean, they had no idea what they were doing and they were lost and they were conflicting with each other and there was no central leadership, it just looked like a big hot mess from the-
1: Yeah, public. well, it do, It did. It showed how underdeveloped our public health system is and how unprepared we were for, you know, this was an unprecedented pandemic. I don't want to minimize that, but at the same time, it was, it was predicted, it was expected. So, you know, I want to have some, um, sympathy for the fact that nobody had seen anything like this before. But in terms of the emergency preparedness community, people knew that this is what was um, a risk. So it shouldn't have been a surprise. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, Marshall, we always close the show out by asking our guests to, if you can fly a banner over America, tell us what that banner should say.
1: Oh man, what an interesting question. Um, you know what I would say, and this is this is not so much about um, uh healthcare maybe it is i don't think it is i think if i could fly a banner over america right now what i would want to say is people we have more in common than than you know we're, we're more unified than we are divided you know but but right now if you read the media if you listen to our politicians um the interest groups special interest groups who are trying to influence the public they really focus on the divisions and the ways that we are all, um, and there are differences, obviously. They focus on the divisions and the ways that we're different. And we have a lot more in common than not. You know. And so I wish people would um, be a little more open-minded and tolerant in their engagement with one another and stop pointing fingers at each other, stop demonizing people who disagree with you um, one thing that's made this country great is that it really is this gathering of people with lots of different perspectives. Um, we have civil discourse, but we seem to have lost to that. <laughs> and it's, it is it is discouraging because um, it gets inflated. Uh, the divisions um, get magnified and inflated on social media, and I'm just not convinced that they really reflect reality.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of it is conflated. Thank you, Marshall, for your insight and wisdom. And Please keep up the good fight. And when your book comes out in the spring, we definitely want to get you back on the show again.
1: Thank you, Ron. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you.
0: So welcome to Just a Hospital Minute. We are adding these segments for one minute at the end of every show to tell you some of the games that hospitals play. Charge master is like menu pricing in a restaurant, but a little different. They can place an implantable pacemaker or an injectable... And the Medicare code can be sometimes 10 to 20 to 30 times what they would charge if it were a network. They can charge 18 to 20 times Medicare as if it was a network. So this is just another hospital minute. Thanks again to our sponsor, the MediSearch Institute. I want to read you a note a CEO friend of mine sent me who used them for a rare childhood disease her daughter had. Dr. Talbot's research was thorough. He provided clear paths of treatment and he gave me access to the best physicians. I'm so grateful for his work. That's the MediSearch Institute. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up. There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing, and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.